Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schnepley and Toth. JG, first off, you're looking very dapper in your uh, Heather shirt. Hen- uh, not Henley, it's he- Henley. Henley shirt. Surprisingly, the color is Heather, so it's a Heather Henley. Oh, I was right. And I went to school with a Heather Henley. Um, Did you really? No. No, I did not. I just thought that uh, we were doing improv. See, you could have lied to me and I'd have fallen for it. Do you know why this podcast uh, is different than any of the other previous podcasts to this point? Yes, I do. Um, Because we discussed this, how to open the show before we uh, started recording. Um, and the answer is, this is the first episode we've recorded since the shallow end hit the one million download mark. I'm sorry, JG, I couldn't quite hear that. Would you repeat what you just said? Oh, certainly must be uh, some interference. Because it sounded like you said we we hit over a million downloads, and I think yeah. I would have been told that. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, surprise. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks for a million downloads. Yeah, that's a that's quite a remarkable milestone. We really appreciate that's it. We really, you know, really it's, cool. It's crazy. We don't take it for granted. We uh, deeply appreciate uh, the enthusiastic nature of your listening. And it proves to me that all the times we have said, "Do us a favor and give us a five star rating and mm-hmm. tell a friend, family, it'll help grow the show." Yeah. You actually were listening. We weren't just we weren't just saying that into the wind. Although those of you who have ignored it so far, um, go screw yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mean that, of course. Um, but we would really like a review, a positive review, or you know, five stars, whatever. You know, it just it helps. It just helps. Hey, <laughs> You might you might have inadvertently hit on an entirely new marketing idea for podcasts down the road, which is where the hosts <laughs> encourage their subscribers to grow screw themselves. I can see it on coffee mugs. <laughs> yeah. And like stress balls. 
The shallow end with Schneebly and Toth. Go, <laughs> Go screw, screw yourself. yourself. I like it. One of the things that I really enjoy is when you and I share our own shallow end moments. Um, and this just happened. Cat, okay. for for uh, for my birthday, she got me uh, a subscription to underpants. I get like a pair of underpants every month. Is that every month? Every month. Nice. Yeah. And they're okay. themed, you know, like of if, course. if it's Halloween, there are little ghosts that uh, are actually luminescent. I, I scared myself. Oh. I got out of bed to get a drink of water and my pants were glowing. Um, Glow in the dark pants. Yeah. We went for a swim and, and my swimming trunks don't have the lining in it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. You know, so sure. like everything is like when the material gets wet, it's like a wet t-shirt contest. Only not as fun. No, because I am exposed and I don't like it. Uh, so I wore a pair of those underpants underneath my swim trunks. And so we get home, we get back to the apartment. And of course, my my shorts and my uh, underwear were soaking wet. And I had chosen... <laughs> A pair of, uh, well, these were the July uh, issue underpants. <laughs> Tell me it's not Pinocchio themed. <laughs> no, no, but but close. It's, uh, okay. it's, a, it's a giant American eagle, and you can imagine where his beak is positioned. <laughs> it's very patriotic. So, so I wore those, and we get home, and they're soaking wet. And so I, uh, I well, let me just say, uh, old glory was at half-mast. I, 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 I got... I got them off and I hung them on the railing to dry railing of the balcony. Shortly after that, a stiff breeze came up and blew my eagle underpants onto my neighbor's roof. Did you have to do the uh, the walk of shame to say, excuse me, but my, my under, wet underpants are on your roof. Can I borrow a ladder? I, I didn't know how to say it in Spanish, so they're, just, oh, they're, still, sure. they're still there. Are you waiting for another breeze to blow them onto the ground? Yeah, hoping for it anyway. <laughs> It's it's a breezy city we live in. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So wow. Yeah. That's quite a story. Well, there you have it. Um, one of those. Moments. I have to interject, by the way, that uh, we're having our house painted, ah. and as you know, at a proper house painting job involves removing, sanding, mm. uh, stucco, and you know, rotted wood and all that stuff. So if you hear pounding or tapping in the background it's it's not a mistake it's well it's it's a mistake that you would listen to it but uh, <laughs> i i can't say yeah it, please go stop yeah no understandable life goes on my friend okay. yeah would you like to go first or would you like me to go first i really don't care well then i will um, go first if you don't mind because is yours, is yours lighthearted? i laughed but then again my sense of humor is a little on the dark side gotcha does anybody get hurt in your story Yes, but they deserved it. Okay. All right. Well, then you go first because in mine, no one gets hurt. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, this is a story that would make Jack Sparrow's adventures look like a tea party. Uh, say, wow. say hello to John Cummings. Hi, John Cummings. John was a sailor and he had an appetite, not for adventure or treasure, but for something very, very different. It was the summer of 1799, and John Cummings, 23 years old, from America, he was a sailor, and he was on a ship that was in France, or headed toward France. This sounds like it may be the oldest story you have ever done on this uh, on this particular podcast. I think it is. 
I think it very well could be. So during the journey, the sailors on board saw uh, a tent set up in a field nearby off the coast Hmm. of France. And this led them to direct their ship toward that field. On approaching the tent, the sailors were welcomed with entertainment. A man was pretending to swallow clasp knives like a sword swallowing thing. Now, of course, there was a lot of grog involved in Cummings being a confident man and had had several glasses of grog or whatever his liquid courage was. Thought He was a few grogs in. <laughs> a few grogs in. And uh, he saw the guy swallowing clasp knives or appearing to. The guy really wasn't doing it. But uh, Cummings didn't know him. I can do that. So he probably thought of himself as going back to the ship and being hailed as Cummings the knife swallower or something. But, but in, in, in a show of bravado, he swallowed his own pocket knife. Oh, no. And because his buddies... They were having a gay old time. They were, they were egging him on. So they start passing him their pocket knives. <laughs> Jeez. So they're wasted, right? And uh, so he, he swallows a second one. And then, a th- and then a third. And then he got to his fourth pocket knife. Yeah. That uh, he swallowed. Now... You might be surprised to learn that he had no serious ill effects initially. What? The next what? the next morning, three knives made their grand exit. Okay. But the fourth, well, we don't know. Hmm. What are you going to do about it? Uh, just kind of st- wait till the next day. I guess you know. I don't know if he was if he, <laughs> he was auditioning for the eighteen hundreds version of Britain's Got Talent or. <laughs> Or if it was just another Tuesday for sailors. We don't know yeah. this, Linz. No, we don't. Years go by. Even though he didn't do it again, uh, the Cummings legend and story lived on. It was passed on from seaport to seaport. <laughs> Six years go by. Uh-huh. And our knife-loving sailor ends up in good old Boston. Beantown. They had heard of Cummings. In his, le- really? in his legendary escapades. And while Boston wow. was not about to be outdone, uh, they wanted a demonstration. So picture this. They're at some rowdy city harborside tavern, a lively crowd, clinking tankards of ale, uh, sea <laughs> shanties in the background. Sure. And all of our uh, all the eyes are on our boy Cummings. Oi, Cummings, someone shouted. Show us that knife trick of yours. Although probably since it was Boston, it would have been more like, "Ah, show us that uh, knife trick of yours. (laughs) Wicked smart trick, Bob. That's a wicked. Can I have your chowder? Um, So others started picking up the chant. Knife, knife, knife. Now, he's not going to back down from a challenge. Of course not. That would be rude. So with each chant... Cummings grew more bold. The spotlight was on him. He was more than ready for an encore. So he swallows a knife. And another knife. Oh, my God. One by one, the knives went down the hatch. The crowd kept shouting and then began counting. Eight, nine, (laughs) ten. By the time they hit 14, the place was roaring. Let me stop you. The the previous time he had he had swallowed only four, correct? Correct. Yeah. 
So he's now up to 14? Yeah, just in this sitting. <laughs> Gee, many Christmas. This is where you get the old phrase, it's all fun and games until someone swallows 14 knives. <laughs> right. Realizing maybe, just maybe, he might have pushed the envelope a tad too far this time. So he did the only sensible thing, and that was immediately check himself into the Charleston Hospital. Can you picture that scene where he shows up at the hospital trying, um, so, remember <laughs> ever, how six ever, years ago I only swallowed four knives yeah. and three came out? What, what, what it happened was, <laughs> anyway, Cummings was treated at the hospital and uh, was released. When you say treated, this is this is again late late 1700s early 1800s yeah early 1800s they probably just fed him mercury but i really i don't know lens <laughs> yeah. it's been lost to history okay um, all right but uh cummings was treated and released and in a very cummings-esque manner he proudly declared to the crowd because he went right back to the uh to the pub uh he, pr- he proudly declared that he had quote Safely delivered all his cargo. <laughs> and I'm sure he wanted to get back to collect on all his, all the, the drinks that people were going to yeah, buy him. Yeah, I think Congratulatory so. Congratulatory ale and grog. So he's back on his ship, the HMS Isis. And uh, I don't know, maybe it was the sea air or maybe he was just really hungry. But Cummings, fueled by liquid courage once again uh, <laughs> to impress his shipmates, this time swallowed 20 knives. Oh, my God, Mr. Cummings. Yeah. He didn't understand <sighs> the food pyramid, obviously. Clearly not. Yeah. 20. Yep. He got a steady diet of castor oil, enemas, and some rather, as, as it says in this report, creative treatments. Um, <laughs> none of them worked. For months, our daredevil hero was, well, he, he's on this ship to England. There's nowhere to go. There's no help you could get. You're going to be out there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so he's just out in the middle of the ocean, parting ways with bits and pieces of his metal buffet. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a slow and painful souvenir collection. Yeah, it was. December the 6th, 1805, HMS Isis. Now, this is a majestic 50-gun man-o'-war. Suddenly, wow. on deck, a man, writhing in pain. He hadn't been bitten by a shark. He had not been uh, beat up by his shipmates. Our man, John Cummings, a proud American, age 29, apparently uh, was feeling the effects of downing, yes, another 19 clasp knives. No. I have to put my foot down on this. I was okay with the four. I was okay with the 14. I was okay with the 20. Yeah. But this 19 is, that is a knife too many, sir. <laughs> By June, the ship had had enough of his shenanigans and they let him go. And off to London, Cummings went. Seeking medical attention. According to the National Institute on Health's National Library of Medicine, Quote, although he was again discharged on October 28, 1807, Cummings was readmitted in September 1808, this time under the care of Dr. Curry. He was given more acid, 
mucilage, and opium, but slowly deteriorated, suffering bouts of pain and indigestion and having difficulty eating. He finally died March uh, 1809 in a state of extreme emaciation. The autopsy was conducted by a Mr. Travers, surgeon and uh, anatomy demonstrator, supervised by a Mr. Lucas. The abdominal cavity was noted to have a, quote, black tinge from all the iron knives. A knife blade and a knife back spring were found in his intestines. There were 30 to 40 fragments of wood, metal and horn found in his (laughs) stomach. This cutlery set is uh, there's actually there are there are drawings of it and um, you can see them online. It's outlandish, but it's not the most outlandish example of this sort of thing. There's a a jaw dropping collection of 78 forks and spoons, no knives, interesting, that someone had the audacity to swallow. And if that's not enough. Uh, this very determined individual had also uh, apparently had a penchant for salt and pepper shakers and casually swallowed a whopping 1,000 other trinkets. And if you would like to see <laughs> these these treasures, head over to Glore's Psychiatric Museum in good old St. Joseph, Missouri. It's quite a sight. My source information, the National Institute on Health's National Library of Medicine and the Guardian. What what prompts somebody to think this is? I got an idea. Yeah, I'm gonna swallow some forks and salt shakers because what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong by swallowing be fun. a clasp knife? I cut the top of the roof of my mouth with a Dorito once, and yeah. um, I bled. It was like queso <laughs> and blood flavored Doritos. <laughs> Queso and blood. I did finish the Doritos. I'm not well, of I'm course. Not stupid. No, a man's got to eat. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing. And of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Looking to take your online gaming to the next level? Forget about your sports betting. The next trend in betting isn't for humans, it's for your pet. Introducing Bets for Pets, the cool new way to wager on your favorite teams. Bets for Pets is entirely legal and loads of fun. Here's how it works. Just ask your dog or cat who they think will win this weekend's biggest games. Actually, if you're a cat owner, you may have to guess at this point. Cats really don't care about sports. But if you're a dog lover, it's super easy. Dogs want to please their humans so much, they'll practically spell it out for you. Then take any amount of money. We suggest starting with $250 on your credit card. Log into your Bets for Pets account and place your bet. If they win, you can tell your friends, I just doubled my money, and it's all thanks to my dog. In no time, you could be rolling in cash. Dogs are prone to addictive behavior. Do not let your dog wager if they show signs of addiction. Certain breeds may be more prone to gambling addiction, especially toy poodles, Labradors, and Corgi Basenji mixes. Bets for Pets is not responsible for your dog's decisions. Bets for Pets Sports Betting. Who's a good boy? Our email address is lifeguard at shallowandpodcast.com. Brian writes, gentlemen, actually the, the email is some of my customer names like Harry Dick. I remember uh, JG last <laughs> week had that quick story about Harry Dick Road and the sign yeah. kept uh, getting stolen. Yeah, and can you blame people for stealing the sign? <laughs> Not at no. all. Wouldn't it be funny if it was just one guy and he's got a whole wall full of <laughs> Harry Dick Road signs? Signs. <laughs> One after the other. Uh, These are some of my favorite unfortunate names of customers at my dealership. I thought you might get a kick out of them. I've been a fan from the beginning and now hooked on all three pods (laughs) in the Box of Oddities cinematic universe. (laughs) So here are some of the names that Brian has had at his dealership. Harry Petters. Mm -hmm. Harry Cooch. (laughs) Dick Loads, (laughs) Loads, <laughs> pronounced like the flower, but looks funny on paper. <laughs> Dick Long, Dick Sharon, Dick Smith, Dick Claus, Dick Baylor, and Mary Pornfuck, P-O-R-N-F-U-K. Oh, wow. All right. Oh, wow. Condolences to Mary. Uh, that's something. I think I would have changed my name. Mm, yeah, that would have been. And also a gentleman named uh, Tony sends us, uh, I was listening to episode 71 today and about crashed the car when I heard about the dill pickle whore. Yeah, we, <laughs> Kat has been hoarding dill pickles here in Ecuador because they don't have the brand that she likes uh, readily available. So when she sees them, she she buys all of them. And, and um, uh, I said she was dill pickle hoard and... Uh, she thought I said whore. And so dill pickle whore is what I call her now. Well, Tony, uh, God bless him, heard that, went home, <laughs> went online and found that domain was available. And he says, so I registered it for the next three years and I wanted to offer it to shallow end for you to use. It's my little gift to dill pickle whores everywhere. If you do indeed want it, let me know and I can arrange to transfer ownership regards Tony, never trust a drunk engineer is his nickname. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we want. That's very, very kind we, of yeah, Tony to do that. We want that. Dillpicklehoard.com. We'll think of something yeah. to do with it. Of course we will. We're, uh, we're, we're industrious that way. Lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. If you'd like to buy us other domain names, <laughs> we would be happy to happy to take those as well. A good friend of mine. Uh, just because it was funny, and he never did anything with it, 
registered the domain, the domain flaminghobo.com. <laughs> I wonder what he'd sell it for. I don't know. I don't know if he still has it, but yeah. Flaming Hobo. That's Flaming Hobo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that's uh, that's very clever. I that would actually be a great little name for a a, a restaurant chain. Oh yeah, like a barbecue joint. Yeah, lunch at the Flaming Hobo. <laughs> <laughs> but you eat beans out of a can with a knife. It's a theme. That's right. It's a theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. And then at the end of the night, they light fire to a tramp. <laughs> Perfect for the kids. We might be onto something. <laughs> yeah. By the way, this is copyright 2023. This is our idea. So don't get any ideas, people. Yeah. Don't steal our flaming hobo restaurant franchise idea. No, this is ours. We're gonna we're gonna make it work. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast, and my name is Bruna. And you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. My story, JG, is called The Man with the Orange Bicycle. Ah. This is interesting because I read this story uh, maybe a year and a half ago. And for whatever reason, didn't think, oh, you know, this would be a good shallow end story. Maybe it's because we hadn't started the podcast yet. I don't know. (laughs) But it's a fascinating story. We've done our share of bank robbery stories. This one is really different. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you the story and you can figure out for yourself why. The man in the baseball cap and sunglasses waited for the teller to notice him. This was the morning of May 26th of 2000 in LaSalle Bank, which is in suburban Highland Park, Illinois. May I help you? Said the young woman behind the counter, smiling. The man presented her with a three by five index card. This is a robbery. Put all your money in the bag. Now, while the teller was anxiously transferring bundles of cash, the man 
held his hands at his heart, gently pressing his palms together as if he were about to whisper, Namaste. Thank you, he said, before walking out the front door. Now, the street is empty. There are no cars, no pedestrians. But, you guessed it, suddenly the man spots a police officer riding a four-wheel ATV. Now, he's still walking out of the bank, but he relaxes his walk. And as the ATV approaches, the bank robber smiles and waves hello. Returning a stiff nod, the officer keeps rolling, and so did the man descending into a parking garage, our bank robber. Now, not 60 seconds later, he emerged carrying an aluminum bicycle on one shoulder and a messenger bag over the other. He's wearing red, white, and blue spandex bodysuit, silver helmet, sunglasses with yellow lenses, and a pair of cycling shoes. He climbs onto the bike clicks into the pedals, and begins to ride leisurely. It's now been less than three minutes since he exited the bank. This is a former cyclist who lost interest in bicycling after not achieving his dream of making the Olympic team. His name was Tom Justice, ironically. (laughs) And Tom had an issue with discipline. He lacked discipline. He found a job as a social worker, but after a while, it felt kind of like a a pointless slog. No finish line, no congratulations. So he starts fantasizing about different identities he could substitute for the same thrill that he got with cycling. Because he was a really, he was a gifted cyclist, but just not, not good enough to make the Olympic team. So he starts thinking of all the different kinds of things he could do for work. He toys with becoming an underwater welder. He talks about working for an auto uh, repo company, repo man. He goes from interview to interview. He's increasingly unhappy with his life. And over the years, he kept thinking of different ideas. He actually started keeping a list. He wrote helicopter pilot, lock picker, priest, (laughs) And then he scrawls two letters, BR, bank robber. It just seems strange that here's a guy who is a gifted cyclist and he wants to make the Olympic team. He doesn't make the Olympic team. And his second choice is underwater welder. How does that? How does that? I don't know. How do you apply your bicycling skills to sub-aqua welding? That's an excellent point. I mean, helicopter, pilot, lock picker, priest. (laughs) Cowboy. Underwater welder. Yeah, cowboy, member of the village people. I don't know. (laughs) But a few days after this robbery, Tom tosses his disguise into the dumpster. And for months, the money that he got in that robbery, which was $5,580, sat in a gym bag inside the closet of his old room at his parents' house. Now, Tom, our bank robbery, assumed the bills were traceable. So he kept only two $20 bills as souvenirs. What's he do with the rest? He tosses it into a dumpster what? behind a few fast food restaurants. Just dumps it. it the motive was not money. No, clearly he not. He just wanted clearly to see not. if he could outsmart law enforcement. I think he wanted to see if he could make it work. Wow. And he did. So he he gets $5,580. He tosses $5,540 into the dumpster. Now, it's about a year that goes by, 
and he commits a very similar robbery. This time, he put the $20 and $100 bills into paper bags and discards them in alleys where he knew homeless people would find the money. Okay, so So, he's kind of a Robin Hood kind of guy. I was just going to say, and I think that's one of the things that so intrigued me about this story, is that nobody ever gets hurt. And while we're not condoning robbing banks, I am impressed that he thought, you know what? I'm going to help somebody who's down on their luck. And he purposely puts the money where he knows homeless people are going to find it. He is so like Robin Hood. He even has like the spandex tights. Exactly. (laughs) I wonder how Robin Hood would have looked with the uh, cycling sunglasses. Oh, he would have looked hot. You know, he would have looked great. God bless him. So he takes all of the $2 bills that he had from the second robbery and he hides them in the bushes outside his apartment, knowing that kids are going to find these $2 bills. And sure enough, a few hours later, he hears kids giggling and he looks out and they're holding these $2 bills, looking at each other like, can you believe this? He discovers that robbing banks and giving away the money became intoxicating. He sees himself as both mischievous and righteous. But as time passes, that feeling starts to fade. And Tom's real life seems mediocre and unfulfilling. He even moves to Southern California thinking he's going to give this Olympic thing a a shot again. And he starts training for the Olympic trials. But while he's out in Southern California, (laughs) what the heck? Might as well rob a few more banks. (laughs) So he does. Now he's wrestling with depression as he's balancing all these things, training for the Olympic trials, robbing banks, And he starts getting into drugs. He begins taking ecstasy every weekend. He has no job, but he's got pockets full of cash and cocaine. And his friends assume that he was dealing drugs. So he is a failed Olympic bicyclist, underwater welder wannabe bank robber who is uh, also rolling on Molly. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Now to convince himself that he didn't have a real drug problem, he starts attending Narcotics Anonymous meetings. But there at those meetings, he just talks about experimenting with drugs. He's in denial about his his habit. Well, he moves into a two-bedroom apartment with a guy named Marty. And Marty is is a (laughs) six-foot-five-tall opera singer from Brooklyn. Does he sing soprano? I I, I envision him singing soprano. Or, Wouldn't or te- that be fantastic? Or tenor. Uh, I don't know what the average height is of an opera singer, but I'm guessing six five is on the is on the taller side. <laughs> they make him stand having in only the back, been to, you know. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I've only been to a few operas. During the week, Marty would cook dinner on their George Foreman grill. They'd watch movies on a sectional couch, <laughs> and on weekends they'd party at clubs. Now Marty knew that Tom. Our protagonist was snorting cocaine recreationally, but he was unaware of this other life that Tom had. Tom drove an old Mercedes Benz, and at night he would drive that car to Oakland's empty shipyards. He's now in Northern California. He says it was easy to find dealers there. And this pattern emerged in Tom's life. He would smoke crack, stay stay sober for a week, rob a bank, then celebrate with more crack. Mm. Now, 
Tom is actually disappointed in himself, deeply disappointed. A bank robber who gives away the money can claim a certain nobility, like even Dillinger was branded a folk hero for rebelling against the system. Right. But Tom realizes that he had devolved into a petty thief stealing quick cash to buy drugs. Now, law officers who are on this case note something consistent in the case, and that is that the uh, almost in in almost every case, people see somebody riding away on a bike that is unique. And one of the things that makes it unique, aside from the fact that it's custom made, more about that down the road, is that it's colored orange. It's an orange bike. And that's pretty rare. So these law officers start... Uh, researching and they come across the name of a company called Steelman, S-T-E-L-M-A-N. It's a prestigious bicycle and they start realizing, okay, this orange bike is, is a thread through all these robberies. Now, Tom had abandoned that bike after fleeing one of his robberies and in Walnut Creek, California, east of San Francisco, an officer, Dexter, had found, he, he'd actually had a hunch that this orange 12-speed bike was special. He learned the serial number and was able to contact the Steelman Company. And the serial number would match actually one of two different bikes, a blue one sold in California or a 1996 orange one sold in Chicago. And you may remember mm -hmm. that this story started with Tom in Chicago. Well, the Steelman Company agrees to post a notice on their website and they include the police department's phone number. Now, meanwhile, and this is not good news for Tom, the FBI is doing their own investigating. FBI tends to get involved, I think, in bank robberies, and they uh, this this was not an exception. They had tied a string of unsolved bank robberies to the same suspect, what the FBI calls a repeater. And since this suspect had a habit of doing what I mentioned, standing before the tellers with his hands pressed together over his heart, they nicknamed him the Choir Boy Bandit. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by how they come up with these names for, for bank robberies. But Choir Boy is actually, I guess, kind of a compliment. So the manager of a bicycle shop in Chicago sees this notice on the Steelman website, calls the Walnut Creek police in California and says, I, I'm the one that assembled that bike. And I've got the guy, I've, I've got the name of the guy who bought it from me. His, his name is Tom Justice. So things are starting to close in on Tom. Well, around the same time, Tom tries to cross the border into Tijuana. But the guy who was shining his shoes, who'd offered to sell him an illegal passport, instead pulled a knife on Tom. So Tom <laughs> thinks, screw this. So he flies from San Diego back up to Oakland. He calls his old six foot five opera singer buddy marty and marty says hey you know what let's get together and catch up well tom reluctantly tells marty everything 
Marty opens up his laptop computer. They find a picture of the orange Steelman bike along with a security cam image of a guy in a baseball cap at a bank teller's window pressing his palms together in front of his heart. Mm. Tom turns to Marty and says, I need to buy a ticket home. Now, back in Chicago, a police chief named, uh, with the last name of Kerry, police chief Kerry, who lived, ironically, next door to Tom's parents, gets a call from a special agent in the FBI's field office in Chicago. There's a warrant out for a man whose parents lived in Libertyville, north of Chicago, right next to this police chief. And the police chief says, you mean the justices? (laughs) And... The agent explained the FBI's been searching for Tom Justice in and around Chicago. Now, Kerry, the police chief, hadn't seen Tom in six months, but he seemed to remember that Mr. Justice's son drove an old Mercedes Benz. And sure enough, the FBI agent says that's the car we're looking for. Mm. And they say they're going to be driving to Libertyville the next day to question Tom's father, Mr. Justice. Tom's behind the wheel of his car. Now, he's driving on Butterfield Road, and when the first police car appears behind him, he doesn't think that much of it. But then there are three more. Mm. After leading the procession for a mile, Tom glances in his rearview mirror again. Now red lights are flashing. He pulls over, reaches for his wallet, leans toward the glove box to grab his registration, and a voice booms through a bullhorn. Freeze. Let me see your effing hands. (laughs) Cops didn't say effing. No. Slowly, Tom glances out the window and five cops have their guns aimed at him. This, this is talking about cool under fire. Tom says, what's this about, officers, as he's getting down on the ground? And as the handcuffs tighten around his wrists, he actually feels a rush of emotion. He, he wants to start crying. This is, this is what fascinates me. Not out of fear, not out of despair, but out of a much heavier sense of something he wasn't expecting at all, which, believe it or not, is relief. relief. Yeah. After four years, this self-destructive cross-country loop was finally coming to... <clears throat> After four years, his self-destructive cross-country loop is finally coming to an end. Now, in an interrogation room, an FBI agent shows him the security cam shot of the choir boy. The orange steelman, that orange bike, had led them right to Tom. And it's at this moment that Tom realizes if he had been riding just an average bike, he might never have been caught. (laughs) So he did the smartest thing he had done in four years. He does a full confession. He's fingerprinted, photographed, strip search, handed an orange jumpsuit. He's booked into the Loop Metropolitan Correctional Center where... His dad, Jay Justice, Mr. Justice, asks his son the one question that everyone is still asking all these years later. Why, Tom? Why did you do this? Tom pauses and says, Dad, I don't know. It's just something I did. Wow. Which I find fascinating. Tom's parents, as most parents would do, are concerned for Tom. They hire him a lawyer. The lawyer points out Tom never carried a weapon. He cooperated with the arrest. His confession helped the FBI sew together all 26 robberies, including several that weren't even in the choir boy file 
In the end, Tom pleads guilty. He's sentenced to 11 years in prison. He's released in 2011, and he returns to cycling because he was good at it, and he finds a job at a donut shop. I thought this article was very clever because they say little do the cops know that the 48-year-old <laughs> guy handing them their chocolate-glazed donuts is one of the most prodigious bank robbers in American history. The notion that he wasn't some run-of-the-mill thief actually gives Tom a certain measure of satisfaction. His former roommate, Marty, the opera singer, interprets Tom's full confession not as an acquiescence to justice, but a statement of purpose. And this symbolized Tom's life. I wasn't just a bank robber. I was a great bank robber. <laughs> the day of the arrest, Tom sits handcuffed in the backseat of the FBI car en route to, uh, to Chicago. And the agent asks, man, what did you do with all that money? Tom, staring out the window, thinks for a moment and then looks at the guy in the rearview mirror and says, you know what, man? Nothing. <laughs> I just think that's amazing. Wow. wow. That's just amazing. And his realization that if he had been not riding a bright orange custom made racing bike, uh, he, he, he may have been, you know what he could have done? He could have dumbed yeah. it down, maybe painted it a different color, uh, put a, yeah. put some scratch, like, Put some streamers in the handlebars. And there you one go. Of those yeah. Ding, 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 ding bells. Yeah. Something a little like bell. That. Yeah. Maybe a little more Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> yeah. With pinwheel on the back. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Something like that. I got this from Chicago Magazine. And also a shout out to my uh, sister Lori, who edited this story down from about a billion pages to what I just now read Tom Justice and the Orange Bike. Fascinating. I had a. I had a pink, uh, a, a purple bike with uh, pink tape on it in uh, Tucson and moved it to California and it got stolen and I still miss that bike. Like a 10-speed? But I never used it to rob a bank. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a racing what bike. What was the first bike you ever had as a kid? I think it was a, I think it was a green Schwinn with, uh, with sissy bars. I thought I was the coolest guy in the neighborhood. Like a banana bike, yeah, banana like seat kind of with stingray. a yeah, stingray yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Yeah, same, same. Mine was gold. Yeah. Mine was made by Firestone. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of a knockoff stingray. But uh, yeah, I always wanted to get the slicks, the tires, the slicks for the back. Sure. But uh, yeah, couldn't afford it. Yeah, yeah. My, da yeah. my dad was a yeah. teacher. So listen, be glad you got a bike. <laughs> I was glad to have a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Quit your complaining. Very glad to have a bike. <laughs> As we said, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. Really appreciate you guys getting us to our 1 million download mark. Truly appreciate it. And uh, as we put on our Facebook post, we're just getting started. Love hearing from you. Lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. We'll talk with you next week. Until then, continue to make good choices. Your life might depend on. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toth. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. Okay, gotta go. 
What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!